We are several weeks into a study of a letter written by the Apostle Paul, which we call the book of 1 Thessalonians. Our study is entitled, Fully Alive. And we're taking a look at how the gospel empowers personal, cultural, and relational renewal in us and in the world around us. And in our text today, Paul addresses the topic of work and ambition as he lays out for us a new kind of ambition that we have in Jesus. It's the title of our sermon is Fully Alive, A New Kind of Ambition. So let's read our text and then we'll pray. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, starting in verse 9. I'll be reading and teaching from the NIV, the New International Version. Verse 9. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders And so that you will not be dependent upon anyone. Church, this is the word of God. Let us pray and ask the spirit to instruct it upon our hearts. Father, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that we can open your word. We can gather freely. We can worship freely. We thank you, God, that we get to come to a place like this and do these things. But this morning, Lord, we need supernatural help. We, we, we are dependent upon your spirit to instruct us and guide us, to explain your word to us. So come, Holy Spirit, do that, God. Write your word upon our heart. We love you, Lord. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, after leading the nation through one of the most tumultuous periods in American history, Abraham Lincoln was constantly besieged by members of both sides of his own political party. One side complained that he moved too slowly and he needed to be more radical, take more radical steps. The other side complained that he moved too slowly and they were encouraging him to make concessions and compromises, you know, to return the union to its previous state. Just anything. Let's get this over with. Both sides thought he was dragging his feet. And so he responded in a classic Abe Lincoln, you know, way with a pearl of wisdom. And he said this. He goes, I may walk slowly, but never backwards. Now, regardless of pace, the key to Lincoln's ambition is twofold. First, he moved. He wasn't still. He he was advancing. He was moving. Secondly, in moving, he did not feel compelled to rush. He was intentional in his movements. Now, this intentional approach to ambition echoes a wisdom that we see throughout Scripture. And certainly the Bible has a lot to say about how we navigate ambition and how we navigate our desire for success. And this instruction can be both challenging for us and it can be encouraging for us. Because for some, our ambition is leading us in the wrong direction. Or or for others, maybe your ambition is moving you along in life, but at an unsustainable pace, like you're pushing burnout all the time. Others maybe today lack ambition altogether. And so today, we look at the Lord's desire to help us, shape us, shape our goals and our focus to direct our ambitions for his good purposes. And so today, we are looking at this picture of a right ambition. 
Now, we've been looking at 1 Thessalonians. We've seen that Paul is addressing specific topics. And we don't know exactly uh, the issues that were going on in that first century church, like all those details or anything. But it's clear, especially in our passage today, that some direction and instruction was needed when it came to the area of how they managed their work lives. And so he writes this little passage to exhort these Christians to live distinct lives as they work and as they manage their ambition. Now, the risk, he warns, is that they might lose their impact, that they might lose their influence, that they might lose their sense of purpose and connection that comes from living a life that's connected to the love of God and living a life that's connected to loving others. Today's text challenges us even to rethink how and why we work and how we might adopt and demonstrate a right ambition in our work. And so what does this right ambition look like? Well, we see three characteristics of right ambition in our text today. First, we see right ambition confronts complacency. We also see that right ambition seeks no praise. And the third thing we see is that right ambition reveals God's love. I'm going to take a look at these one at a time. First, right ambition confronts complacency. Now, so far in this letter, Paul has recognized the remarkable way that this church community had both received the gospel and how they had been changed by the gospel. And he celebrates their work of faith. He celebrates their labor of love and their endurance of hope as they've been uh, pouring out words of encouragement and loving other Christians in their community and beyond. They had a reputation for loving others well. But Paul still is concerned about their well-being. Well, when this church was originally planted, his time with them was cut short, and so he feared that they might have been drawn away from the truth. But then he sent Timothy, a co-laborer, to go check on the church, and Timothy reported this wonderful news back about how well they were doing. And so Paul, in our text today, we see him celebrate this good news. Like, you guys are doing really well. You have a reputation for loving people, and that's awesome. But Paul does not stop at simple congratulations. He, he, he doesn't like let them rest on their laurels, so to speak. He urges them not to be satisfied with past growth, but to press on to grow more and more. And in that, he unveils one of life's great temptations for us, which is to settle for the status quo and to not pursue growth. That's what it means to be complacent, to stop growing once you reach a place that is good enough for you. Elvis Presley helped pioneer the mass popularity of several different genres of music. It's actually incredible if you were to go and, and just look at all of the different genres of music that were like chart-topping hits that he had created. He created these incredible hits, obviously rock and roll, but in the gospel genre, the rhythm and blues, country music, rockabilly, what we now call rockabilly music, soul music. He was on the, the folk charts. He, he was even uh, topped the charts with a children's song in, in, in that category. It was an incredible career. And at the height of his career, Elvis was asked about what dreams he had left to achieve. And he responded by kind of correcting the question. And he's like, I'm not chasing dreams. I'm driven by ambition. And he gives us this beautiful 1950s definition of ambition. He says, ambition is a dream with a V8 engine. I love it. It's so 50s, right? 
See, there's this drive, there's this focus, there's this purpose, there's this power behind ambition. He wasn't just out chasing butterflies in a field, he was driven. And this is what the Christian life requires. There's a certain commitment to focus and purpose and power that's required for us to to walk this out. Now, I remember as a young Christian up at a high school summer camp, um, someone who was teaching was describing uh, a version of this, and it went along these lines. I'm sure many of you have have heard this, this analogy, but it was something like being a Christian is like hiking in a river. You have to hike against the current, which means you have to keep going, which means even when you're resting, you have to apply yourself to that work of just simply existing in the river, or you run the risk of being swept downstream. And so it's good for us. It's a good word. It's a good encouragement for us to guard against complacency, especially since complacency can be sneaky and we can become blind to it. Now, in preparation for today, uh, Pastor Tim shared with me three signs of complacency that were awesome, and so I thought I would just share them with you guys. So when complacency starts to set in, he's noticed three different things, and sadly, they're a little all too true in my life as well. He says, the first sign that we're settling into complacency is that we're quick to make excuses. When complacency sets in, we become resistant to growth, and so we offer excuses. These are, you know, we, we phrase it as we're offering reasons why we don't need to grow, right? And we say things like, well, that won't work. I've already tried that. In fact, I've done that a million times. In fact, I could lead that class. I've already read a million articles on that. I'm, I don't know if you know, but I'm sort of an expert on that topic. Like, we give all these excuses for why we, we, we don't really need to grow, And then complacency can hide behind these excuses in us. Secondly, when complacency sets in, we're no longer teachable. We resist being challenged. We we resist being pushed, encouraged. And we're annoyed by motivated people around us because we accuse them of nagging us or trying to manipulate us. And this lack of teachability, I think that's where all the excuses come from, right? Then finally, when complacency starts to set in, we become content with past Success. Complacency allows us to look backward and to find enough satisfaction in the past to keep us or prevent us from moving forward. And that's a scary place, right? Resting in the past is a way to avoid the hard work of moving forward in the present. Now, that is hard for us to hear. I, I know it's hard to hear. It's hard for me to hear. It's hard because I have experienced all of these different seasons in, my, in, in different seasons of my life. I've displayed all of these signs of complacency. But here's the thing, and this is why I share this. Every time complacency has been broken in my life, it is always by the power of God and the grace of God, really, that I would go and humble myself to someone else. I would go to others with it. Freedom from complacency starts with one simple thing, admitting it. Just going to a brother or a sister and saying, man, I am struggling. I'm stuck in a spot. We see this in our text today. Let's let's reread those first few verses, starting in verse 9. Paul says, about your love for one another, we don't even need to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. In fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Now pause right there for a second. Therein lies the temptation for them to kind of rest in that spot, especially if you've got people telling you that, hey, what you have done is good, right? Some of us, it's like, okay, rest time. Hit the pause button. And here Paul continues. He goes, yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, 
to do so more and more. He says, press on. Keep on pressing on. There's more for you in this. There's more in this for you, for your community. He's like, and you press on together. He's writing to a community of believers. This isn't a solo operation. We need one another. Right ambition confronts complacency. Well, the second characteristic, number two, of right ambition is that right ambition seeks no praise. We see this in verse 11 where Paul says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business, work with your hands, just as we told you. Now, from the beginning of time, human history tells the timeless story of cultures and individuals alike striving to achieve fame and to achieve notoriety. And it seems that both individually and collectively, humans have always longed to be seen and to be known by others. And this desire has led to countless conflicts, world wars even. And so to live a quiet life is to be free from that that desire at the core of our identity. In the 1960s, the Beatles were the most successful band on earth. They'd achieved about as much notoriety as a person could ever hope for. But after they broke up in 1970, uh, the guitarist George Harrison, he was asked what he likes most now that the Beatles were over. And it's a telling answer. He says, the nicest thing today is to open the newspapers and not find myself in them. See, Harrison's relief bears witness to at least some of the heart behind Paul's Uh, encouragement here. There's freedom in pursuing a quiet life. Freedom from the restlessness that can drive us to care too much about how others view us. Freedom from the insecurity about how others, like, am I being recognized? Do people kind of, do they know who I am? Right? There's freedom from striving to get our sense of value by the way we're viewed from other people. There's freedom from the restless monitoring of our standing within a group or or monitoring of our standing within an organization to know where we stand with others. Are, Are people recognizing my achievements? Am I really climbing the ladder? Is my voice really being heard? Am I really an influencer? Am I just kind of a yes man? So there's freedom from that. There's freedom from having to keep social media updated with these elaborately edited write-ups and strategically filtered and staged photos that were meant to represent our lives to the whole world, right? We're free from that. Paul is teaching here, be free. In fact, the way he says it is humorous. He says, make it your ambition to not be publicly ambitious. It's a way to paraphrase that. Now, in contrast, he calls us to find something that's much more valuable, contentment. He calls us to be content without the need for recognition. Now, this is consistent with Jesus' teaching in Matthew 6 specifically, where he teaches what this quiet life that Paul is exhorting us to, he teaches us what it looks like as we practice our faith. Matthew chapter 6, first four verses, Jesus says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, don't announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. So when we live for the approval of others, we inevitably also fear their disapproval. 
And Paul's exhortation to live a quiet life stands as a stark contrast to this approval-disapproval paradigm that grips us because the only approval that matters is God's. And the point here is not that we should never do anything public. No, that's not what Paul's saying and that's not what Jesus is saying. The point Jesus and Paul make is that our public behavior, that our public actions are founded by and rooted in our private affections. In Jesus, we are secure in life. And so our our public actions aren't rooted in a desire for security. We already are secure in Jesus. In Jesus, we are loved, we are equipped, we are empowered. And so we don't look to public places or public recognition for those things. It frees us to no longer pursue the recognition and the reputation from the world. We're now free to love the world without expecting anything in return from people. Our motives are different. Our motive for having relationships is different. We're not looking for approval from others. We're not looking for profit from others. We can now, in Jesus, be content to not be noticed in public because we have been noticed by God. This new reality in which we live, living in the reality of God's love and God's approval, it helps us relate to others now in a healthy way. And Paul tells us what this looks like in our passage in verse 11. He says, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands just as we told you. Okay, I love that this is translated, you should mind your own business. That, I mean... It's, it, that's 2,000 years ago. This was like super important advice. Today, this is super important advice, isn't it? This is a good word for us. Apparently, this is an issue in the church Paul's writing to. And people are eager to concern themselves with and interfere in the affairs of other people. And Paul says, I love it. Mind your own business, right? This isn't about ignoring other people. He's not saying, hey, just ignore other people. You do you, I do me. He's not talking about ignoring other people. He's talking about loving other people correctly. See, it's one thing to have a deep and genuine loving concern for the needs of another person. That's a selfless concern. That's not what Paul's addressing here. Paul is addressing our need to gossip, our need to interfere, our need to like meddle in other people's lives. He's talking about the times when we feel this burning need, like I have to be the first person to hear this gossip. He's addressing our tendency to overlook our own issues and focus on the drama and the deficiencies of others. So how can we check ourselves to make sure we're not gossiping? That those, those desires we have for information or, or whatever it is that is, is information that seems like gossip, how can we check that? Well, we can start by just asking ourselves a few important questions. Just simply, do I need to know this? Right? Do other people need to know what I'm about to say? Does this person really need to know this detail that I'm a, you know, feel compelled to share with them. See, gossip accompanies an attitude that's not connected with other people. Gossip is connected to an, a heart attitude that's, that's concerned about ourselves. It's a sort of a, like a sinful curiosity that we have. And our new ambition is to mind our own business, Paul says. And so we ask these questions before we're just so quick to speak. Questions like, am I qualified 
to involve myself in this. Maybe I don't need any more information. Or is my motivation to help? Or do I just really want to feel needed and so I'm going to listen to someone and not really even engage? Or is there a way that I can help someone by directing them to an appropriate resource without having to have all of the details? So we can kind of leave that person maybe with their dignity and point them to a resource without having to like get all the goods on them, so to speak. Because a preoccupation, and the reason I think, at least in my life, the reason I think we need to be so careful with this area of gossip is because a preoccupation with other people's business hinders our growth. And a preoccupation with other people's business, it also hinders the willingness of other people to trust us. And so having a right ambition means our ambition is to mind the business that is ours. And Paul adds to this, and work with our hands. Now, it's kind of a funny phrase that he would have, you know, mind your own business and work with your hands. It seems seemingly unrelated. And it's still, it's an appropriate exhortation for us today. And he makes a a much bigger point that we'll get to in a second. But first, working with our hands for a couple of reasons, I think we need to hear this because it's easy for a culture to look down upon the trades or to look down upon service work. And in our culture, is no different, right? With technology and arts are kind of at the center stage of our interest and culturally, those are the things that we seem to really celebrate. And so it's easy to become distanced from the hard work of a laborer or the hard work of a tradesman. And the Bible does not allow us to have this position. It's our tendency apart from God to view and to value others based on what they do or based on what they earn. And, and we do this to ourselves too. We'll assign a value to ourselves within a group of people and then we'll behave or act according to that value. And oftentimes that value is self-assigned based on what we do for a living or based on our income in relation to the people who are in that group with us. And Paul is challenging this tendency and he's getting us to think about valuing ourselves and valuing others based on something other than occupation and other than income. He's encouraging us to think about others in light of God's love for them and not in light of how our culture assigns values, value to other people. Another reason Paul directs us to work with our hands is because some people in this church stopped working and they had become dependent upon other people. They just, there were people apparently in their church that were not working. And he's not talking about people who can't work. That's a completely different situation. That's actually a completely different topic that Paul does address at length and instructs us as a church how we can help and come alongside people who are unable to work. Well, Paul is addressing people who won't work. And he encourages us, as we are able, to pull our own economic weight. Now, in Paul's day, it it may have been possible to wrongly view the church as the birthplace for laziness. It seems like there were enough people in this church to where Paul kind of puts a real fine point on it. And and this should never be the case with us as Christians because people are watching, and this is where Paul applies uh, this big, broad uh, vision, this big, broad understanding, the application to don't gossip, work with your hands. He's saying people are watching. Our culture is, is watching. The world watches Christians. And so we are to live in a peculiar way because the world is watching. And so we must have a right ambition in life because, and this is our third point, number three, right ambition reveals 
God's love. Look at verse 12. Paul says that, you know, mind your own business, work with your hands, verse 12, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent upon anybody. He's saying others are watching. And if we want them to see Jesus, we need to allow Jesus to shine in us and through us. People need to see a supernaturally transformed life. Jesus doesn't just direct us to talk about him. Paul's saying we now live differently. Our whole lives, the wholeness of who we are, declares the love of God, declares the transformation of the gospel. Our work makes Jesus obvious. Our right ambition makes Jesus obvious. Because if we're not distinct and we haven't changed, how are people ever going to see Jesus in us? Laziness and gossip and vanity and using other people, these do not explain or expose the love of God. But when love is expressed through faithful, humble work, when love is seen in our respectful living, when people encounter a humble person who honors the Lord in their work, and in their words, and in their willingness to love others, Jesus becomes obvious. And Paul connects how we work and live with how non-Christians view Jesus. As we earn respect from non-Christians, we show the power of the gospel to transform lives. See, God wants to transform and showcase your life right where you live and right where you work. God's plan is, is, to, is to show you and demonstrate you as an example of his generosity and of his love, a, a, a beautiful example of the transformation of the gospel. Your life may, might be the lifeline that your neighbors are looking for right now. Your life might help explain the love of God to people around you who have never seen God's love at work. And I, I mean, I'm talking about people like us, right? Like busy people, busy moms, busy dads. I feel like I spent three days at the Little League field just yesterday, right? We're busy. God wants to use you. God wants to like shine through you. Singles, God wants to shine through you. He wants to demonstrate his love to the world through you, right where you are. He's not waiting for you to get married. He's like, right now, young adults, High schoolers, junior hires, God wants to shine his light in you and show his love to the world around you, through you. We get to live this out, the reality of Jesus' love every day. It's a beautiful testimony, proving to our friends and neighbors that God's love in Jesus is real. Just look at my life. You know me. You know how imperfect I am. Look at, look at what the Lord is up to. Look at what the Lord is doing. And this happens not by winning arguments, not by winning debates. It doesn't happen by like political influence or, or posting the, the right clever repost on Facebook or whatever. It doesn't happen by faking it or trying harder and letting your neighbors see one side of you and while your family knows the other side all too well. We get to work this out in front of other people, the good times, the hard times, the, the real genuine struggles in life. And the world will see the supernatural love and the supernatural grace and the transcendent power of God to love and deliver broken people like me. That's what it's like to live our life as a Christian. We live our lives 
from a place, from a position, from a posture. We are fully loved, we are fully approved, and we are fully empowered children of God. That is who you are in Jesus. And we get to live in a way that others will recognize as distinct, as peculiar, as this supernatural demonstration of the love of God as we allow the love of God to work in us and through us and affect the way, even the way we work, even our ambition. Right ambition gives our work and our relationships dignity. Right? We now treat people in our life with dignity and grace. There's something peculiar about what the gospel does to a person. Our marriages are different. Our dating relationships are different. Our friendships are different. Our family relationships are different. Our coworker relationships, they're distinct. We handle the business of our daily lives with dignity and integrity. This means that when the gospel starts changing our hearts and changing our lives, Being honest and being fair is important to us. We strive to be honest employees. We strive to be honest and fair employers. We keep our promises. We pay people on time. We pay them the agreed upon amount. We honor our government leadership by paying our taxes honestly and on time, right? We offer petitions and prayers and intercession and prayers of thanksgiving for people in positions of power, which Paul instructs us to do. Our lives are peculiar. And so today, how is the Lord wanting to shape your ambition? How is the Lord wanting to refocus your work? How is he wanting to affect change, gospel-fueled change on your relationships? And some of you may feel like you're not ready, right? You're just too much of a mess. Listen, today the Lord will meet you right where you are in your life. He will meet you right in the midst of your busyness. Right in the midst of your stress. The Lord will meet you right in the dark valley of discouragement. He will meet you. Maybe it's a sin issue. Maybe you're just like totally overwhelmed with shame. Like you don't even know. To bring this out would be devastating. Listen, to not bring it out is devastating to you and to the people in life around you. The Lord wants to give you freedom. And he's willing to go to those dark places and meet you even in your sin, even in your shame, in your complacency. Jesus is not afraid of the dark places where you may be today. He is willing to meet you there. And he wants to pour out his love and his forgiveness and his approval. He wants to reshape and refocus the intentions and the goals and the ambitions of your heart. And he wants to cause his light to shine in you. And he wants to cause his light to shine through you to the world around you. He wants to take a broken person and love them and change them from the inside out. And he invites the world to say, come and see how good the love of God is. Come and see this work that is happening. Today, Jesus' ambition is to bring you into loving relationship with him. Today, you can know, you can enjoy the love and the approval of God today. The love and approval of God is for you this morning. Not because of what you've done. Right? You might have stopped reading your Bible a few months ago and you're like, oh, maybe, maybe if I read my Bible for a few days and I chuck up a couple of these like Hail Mary prayers, then I'll be in a place where I feel like I can kind of ask God for something. 
Look, God's love for you and his pursuit of you has nothing to do with what you've done or what you've failed to do. Jesus was ambitious in his pursuit of you. So ambitious, he laid his life down for you. And because Jesus, the perfect man, was willing to trade his life for ours, we can now taste and know the goodness of God's forgiveness and love. You don't have to strive for the approval of others. You are fully approved by God in Jesus. You don't have to impress or please other, others. God is fully pleased with you in Jesus. There is freedom for you this morning in the name of Jesus. Today, you can step out of complacency. You can set aside restless ambition and insecurity. This morning, you can lay a hold of the rest and the right ambition that Jesus has for you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for your word. It is a good word indeed for us. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel, this good news of your incredible love for us. We thank you, God, that you have done everything for us. Just like, like David testified in Psalm 23, he says, you set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Today that table is set by God and we get to join you at a feast and there's nothing we have done. I pray, Lord, Holy Spirit, that you would move within each of us. And for those who are sitting on a fence, God, I pray that you would move their hearts that you would open their eyes to know your love and your forgiveness and your salvation in Jesus. Holy Spirit, help us respond this morning. Just ignite our hearts, enliven our hearts in those dark places. Or maybe for some of us, it's like a dead place. Maybe for some of us, we've reached a certain age and it's like ambition's not really on our radar. This morning, God, I ask for you to set a fire in our hearts, God. We wanna burn. We, wanna, we want light to shine from us. Thank you, Lord, that you're not done with any one of us. I pray, Lord, now as we worship that you would connect our hearts and our minds to the reality of your love. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning, going to be a couple of people up here on the, on the right and the left of the stage. If you need prayer or if you're stuck, if you're, if you're like in that spot where you're like, I, I really don't know what to do, go get prayer. Have someone pray for you. We put carpets down, just a little patch of concrete up front where there's carpets on top. If you want to get on your knees, you can do that anywhere, but there's carpets up front. You're invited to come up and use them if you'd like. The communion elements are also up front. The people on the balcony, we've got communion elements just outside the door there. I want to encourage you, if, if, if you're a Christian, if you're following Jesus, I want to invite you to the Lord's table. I want to invite you to take the communion elements and to allow the love of God to be real. As teeny as that little cracker in that thing is, to snap that thing and experience and remember and receive and celebrate the broken body of Jesus. And as we tear that little top off of that little thing and we drink that juice, we remember and we receive and we, and we feel with our own mouth just that the sacrifice of Jesus, the intentionality of Jesus, the right ambition of Jesus, he knew that our salvation would come at a cost. And he was willing to go all the way 
So come, church, let's receive the elements and celebrate the gospel as we worship this morning.